From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Here with me today is Dr. Andrea Shaw. She's a pediatrician at Upstate who's going to talk about the care she provides to refugee children. Welcome, Dr. Shaw. Thank you. So um, I wanted to start with you explaining what your practice is like. I know you care for a lot of um, refugee children. Um, so what is that like for you? What, what countries are represented in your practice? So I'd say it's a really wonderful opportunity to essentially practice global medicine right here in Syracuse because our patients come fr from all over the world and they follow the waves that refugees resettle in Syracuse through two major agencies that come through Syracuse who we work very closely with. Um, I have the luxury of meeting refugees within their first 90 days of coming and getting to know large families who have not had the opportunity to have consistent primary care or consistent doctors see them over time. Um, and so it's really a privilege to be at the helm of not only addressing their needs that have sometimes lingered for years uh, while they've had a life in turmoil, but also new challenges that arise once they settle here um, and things that we work toward together uh, as I get to know them. But the, as far as countries where they come from, they certainly span the globe and every year they shift as far as the majority. And over the years that we've had waves of people coming from, you know, back in the 70s or 80s, we had Vietnamese and Eastern Europeans, followed by Africans from South Sudan and Somalia, but we still see many of these waves continue. So the more recent wave that most people are familiar with, uh, the conflict in Syria, but there's still plenty of uh, refugees coming from Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I say our biggest wave from Africa is certainly from D Democratic Republic of Congo, followed by Somalia, Burundi, uh, still coming from Sudan, uh, and Eritrea and other places in Africa. And we still have a large contingent coming from Burma and from, from Burmese, the Burmese population and Bhutanese population who were di displaced many years ago but lived many years in camps before they were able to resettle. How are you able to communicate? Do you have translators or do you, do you speak other languages? I'm not medically fluent in any other language other than English. So even though I may know bits and pieces and greetings in, in different languages and some conversational bits here and there, I certainly rely on medical translators heavily throughout the day. And Upstate has really done an incredible job in investing in various different opportunities. I have the option for every patient I have to use audio, uh, phone translation, a video translation um, for those service, for those languages that it's available with an iPad, um, as well as live interpreters that I could schedule to come. And Upstate is very open and has really helped us be innovative in this. I'd say we use the iPad um, for pediatrics most consistently, just because it's really nice where the interpreter can actually see view the whole room. They can see both parents. They can see all of the children. And they can often see what I'm trying to demonstrate to parents or might be looking at on an exam. So they wind up being more of an interactive component. Um, but every patient is different. And assessing every uh, patient's interest and need uh, is important when dealing with translators because, for instance, somebody might not be comfortable with looking at somebody who they may or may not know or they may or may not be from sure. a particular area that they're from. Um, and so all of these are important and sensitive issues that you really have to work with the patients up front because if you're not comfortable communicating from the beginning, you're not going to accomplish what you need to accomplish together. Sure. So. 
So as, um, as the pediatrician seeing a child for the first time um, who's a refugee, what, what sorts of things are you having to think about um, in terms of their care? Are you looking for immediate medical issues? Are you thinking about I don't know, vaccinations and things like that? What would, what would encompass the visit? All of it. So okay. um, very interesting is that we th- all the refugees who come to us have a medical clearance exam six months prior to coming done by the IOM. IOM is the International Organization of Migration, who is an intergovernmental body responsible for the tail end of the vetting process that usually lasts over the course of two years. Um, But this medical exam needs to be done within a six-month window of newly arriving refugees. So this will be a document that usually has reviewed the patient's medical history, would include any vaccinations they have proper records for, often administered while they're in a refugee camp, any medications that were given just prior to departure, and any screening for things like tuberculosis that would have occurred during that six months prior to coming. So it comes in a bit of a skeletal form, but that's the basic information that usually gives us leads on whether or not this child has a chronic condition that may need more attention, uh, often birth defects and chronic medical issues that didn't have specialty care attention there, uh, but are needs that the children will have. We also have clues to malnutrition uh, when we see growth uh, documentation from these records. So we try to review all of what we can, which is usually available for, I'd say, 75 to 80% of our patients who come. We have this documentation available through the CDC, uh, the Centers for Disease Control, uh, prior to them coming. Then the patients arrive. We take a careful history from the parents, birth history, their developmental history, and any concerns that the parents might have. And being very aware of things like surgeries that may not have been quite as carefully done overseas, different infectious risks that patients may have been exposed to, children who come from severe malaria zones who may have gotten blood transfusions and blood products from refugee or from family members. So all of these things are sort of risk factors that we'll assess with the parents. And then moving forward from there, we do a basic physical exam. We review vaccinations that are recommended for them. Uh, in order to enter school here and plan for their booster visits over the course of the year and addressing any of these concerns that arise. So certainly... And it could be any age child uh, that you could see uh, from infancy to teens or whatever, right? Yep, absolutely. And often moms come pregnant, and so we get newborns shortly after arrival who've been exposed to things from the refugee camp indirectly because of mom's pregnancy. Um, But yes, we'll have anyone usually six months and older who's arriving. Um, And so their immediate health needs certainly address things that went on from child, from birth that were not addressed, issues of malnutrition, issues of parasites that they may have been exposed to, lack of vaccinations that they received. But then once their life transitions here, we see a lot of the challenges in pediatrics that mirror our populations here. So the rise in pediatric obesity is actually higher risk in children who were malnourished previously because of how their metabolism had changed. Interesting. And so we see a lot of new interesting trends that are really important to keep an eye on. Um, and we also see different risk factors that can't fully be explained. For example, somebody who may have um, more severe high blood pressure or diabetes that is actually linked with a life of chronic stress and toxic stress prior to that. But we're seeing it in kids who are not necessarily overweight or who do not necessarily have the family health risk factors um, that we've classically attributed these conditions to in the United States. 
And then lastly, but it's still a huge underlying theme to all of this, is how trauma plays out in these kids' lives. Because even when you take a history from the parents and you understand the trauma that these parents and these children have been through along the way, you can't appreciate all of the ways that it's going to manifest in each particular child along the way. So they may manifest signs of acute stress as all of these changes happen, uh, but then there's later things like behavioral challenges or other stresses that come out as the kid's been here for years. And so being aware of all these things and how it affects the kid's growth and development is important. Good point. Uh, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate pediatrician Andrea Shaw about refugee health. Um, that's interesting. Now tell me, how did you get involved in refugee health? So it's really nice to be back in Syracuse because... Because you grew up here. Grew up yeah. here. So uh, certainly opportunities that I had through my church when I was in high school, I would say would be the first exposure that I had. Um, so there were volunteers from my church growing up who would go downtown and be acquainted with new refugee families. And so I met Bosnian families and Somali families uh, at that time in high school. And you fall in love with the people, you fall in love with their stories, and you're in every way trying to help them navigate this strange new world that they live in, whether or not it's getting a winter coat before before the first snowstorm hits or it's helping them navigate to a doctor's appointment that maybe you knew something about, more about that health facility that they're going to that you could possibly help them with. You become a trusted face for the family and you become somebody that they rely on and that's a relationship that doesn't go away. I'm still in touch with families that I knew of back when I was in high school. And so wow. circling back after my medical training and other adventures have taken me away from Syracuse. It's really nice to be back, to be part of this community again, because Syracuse has been a consistent sanctuary city for refugees over many, many years. When did you decide you wanted to be a doctor? Good was question. In high school? <laughs> was that, were you sort of drawn to medicine in high school? Or? Well, I started off uh, my career at Cornell in marine biology. And so that was, that was always the dream. And looking at coral disease and climate change and had certainly fallen in love with this undersea world. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think I really v valued the connections that I made with people and not that sea fans and corals and coral disease were not interesting and fascinating, um, but I really valued the exchange that I had with people on all different levels of my work. So even though the science was fascinating, I needed a way to connect with the human side of things again. And so that's where I had decided to come back to Upstate for medical school after my undergrad career. Neat, neat. Well, let's get back to um, your medical practice. Um, the refugees that you see from a particular country, um, Somalia or, or whatever country, do they have health needs that differ from immigrants that come from the same country? And maybe you can talk about the difference between refugees and immigrants. Yeah, very good question. So, so one of the biggest questions we have for refugees is not only where have you come from, where have you been born, where does your family culturally identify, but also where have you been along the way. So I think that's the major difference. Where have you come from and where have you been is a story of a refugee's life that often isn't as clearly mapped out in an immigrant's life, where they're coming from a particular country to rejoin a family member here in Syracuse, or um, they have steady plans along the way to really reshift their life. Whereas a refugee, by definition, is fearing persecution. So they've left their they left their homeland, they left their livelihood, they left their family and everything they knew and loved with often little more than what they can carry on their head or their back to make it to a second country where they can simply be safe. 
So that fear of persecution may come from war, maybe political persecution, tribal persecution, sexual orientation persecution, religious persecution, you name it. That fear has left them to drive them from home. So they're their process of coming starts with a traumatic start that is often different from the immigrant's story. Then you have the complications of the months to years that they will spend in various steps along the way. Some transfer from different countries along the way. Some of them stay in one particular country for years up to decades before they even resettle. And so I think that whole process brings new layers of challenges to the refugee that you, you can only understand by asking their story and trying to be open to whatever they bring forward. And so understanding that path and the layers of trauma and the layers of freedoms that they gave up living in a refugee camp with the uncertainty of day-to-day -day life there, without livelihood, without very quality schools or access to health care, and then giving that up when they say, we will seek asylum, wherever the United Nations High Commissioner for hum for Refugee Resettlement decides we will go, we will go. And so then, after two years of security clearance, they may be settled in one of 26 countries. And at that point, they've deemed that that's the safest path for their family. But that was a difficult decision for them right. to make along the way. Right. So every refugee comes with a story. Every story is human. And the more we can do to just respect and understand what they've gone through, I think the better we serve them in whatever capacity we interact with them. Well, and Syracuse being a sanctuary city has, uh, how, how many refugees did we get last year that resettled here? It was over 1,400. It's a lot of interaction, I mean, people could interact with refugees possibly. There's, there's a lot in this community. Do you have any advice for what um, we can do in Syracuse to support refugees? Catholic Charities and Interfaith Works are the two main refugee resettlement organizations in this city. And they, in connection with many community partners, work very hard to continue to try to find quality job opportunities, safe housing, um, and ongoing support for the refugees on so many levels. So reaching out to those agencies on a broader level, certainly in, in ways that you might be able to help or support these vulnerable families, is certainly the best way to streamline our efforts. Because the goal is sort of self-sufficiency over a number of years um, for refugees that resettle in Syracuse. So um, quality employment, housing, those are all kind of continual issues, right? Yep, they're so. ongoing issues. And these refugees over time become no longer refugees, but they're part of the fabric of our global community in Syracuse. So they are our neighbors, they're next to us at our places of worship, they're in front of us at the grocery store, they're next to us at the in the doctor's office waiting room. So just reaching out to them as fellow humans in ways that we can continue to connect and keep our mind and hearts open to them is the most important thing we okay, can offer. Okay, very good. Well, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. My guest has been upstate pediatrician Andrea Shaw. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air podcast and radio show.